the National Archives podcast series. Henry VIII, Dynasty and Power in Tudor England. By the time Henry reached his early 30s in the 1520s, he was made to realise, perhaps by people like Wolsey, that his search for glory would fail unless he secured the future of his dynasty. Although his father, Henry VII, had seized the throne at the comparatively late age of 28, by the time he was 34, his rule was more confident with the influence uh, insurance of two sons, Henry himself and Prince Arthur. Nevertheless, he still faced difficult um, conspiracy and uncertainty before he died in 1509. Henry VII was 34, uh, Henry VIII was 34 in 1526, and his only legitimate heir was the Princess Mary, and this situation obviously needed remedying. I think we can, we can certainly look at most of the changes that happened after 1526 as, as part of this quest for an heir. Things like the Reformation, the removal of the monasteries from local life, really massive changes which had gone back through the medieval period um, as a st- stable part of, of English life were overthrown um, as Henry tried to ensure that the Tudor dynasty would continue. We can move on to Anne Boleyn and sort of give you some of the background to Anne's career. She was actually sent over, born in about 1500, sent over to um, to Burgundian and French courts um, and had a very unusual education for an English woman. She was the daughter of Thomas Boleyn, um, Earl of Ormond, and Wiltshire. So being educated in France seven years as, as a maid of honour to Queen Claude gave her something of a very confident air. And certainly she must have had quite a lot of attention in France because she knew how to behave around the court to attract attention when she came back to England. And there's a lot of commentary about this sort of dazzling appearance, not particularly because she was so attractive, but because of the way she conducted herself, the way she dressed, the fashion she brought. This really turned people's heads. But she didn't turn Henry's head straight away. She was probably around the court for several years as um, in the household of, of Queen Catherine before Henry um, paid her much attention. And I think her rise probably had as much to do with, with Henry's change of mind over Queen Catherine as it did about her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, or her father promoting her as a candidate for the Queen's bedroom. So Henry quickly became besotted once Anne's sister Mary had been shunted out of the way as mistress. And in 1526 and 27, he wrote uh, several love letters, now in the Vatican Library. And for a king who hated writing so much, they had a stamp made of his signature, so he didn't have to write it out. This was quite an amazing achievement. So it testifies to how much in love he was with her. And really, this this love was mixed with his um, uncertainty over the validity of his marriage because of his brother's um, marriage to Princess Catherine in 1501. A new marriage didn't guarantee Henry a legitimate heir, obviously not, um, but it satisfied the most important aspect of the problem as far as he was concerned, which was how to get legitimate access to Anne Boleyn and um, how to get rid of Catherine. You know, He'd known her since... He was about 10 years old in 1501, so over 25 years at this stage. I think um, you can tell from the list of of mistresses he had before this time that he was obviously getting a bit tired of her. But both Anne and Henry knew that any children and any marriage that they arranged had to be sound in in law and legitimate. (coughs) But as James mentioned, Charles V's control over the Pope led to frustrations on both sides. 
And Anne eventually blamed Wolsey, um, who was reluctant to see Anne become queen, for stifling progress in England. And this sort of drove Anne into alliance with Wolsey's opponents. And she began to promote those who believed in the king's supremacy over the church in England, ideas that had been floating around for 30 or 40 years in theological circles, and obviously much earlier in terms of Lollardy. So she used her radical ideas to encourage attacks on the Pope's power in England, hopefully to allow Henry to decide his own future and his own marriage, as James mentioned earlier. So she's introducing the ideas of radicals like William Tyndale, Edward Fox and Thomas Cranmer. And by May 1532, Thomas Cromwell's successes in organising the submission of the clergy was a direct result of Anne catalyzing religious radicalism around the court in the search for, for valid grounds for her marriage. And here we have the Act of Supremacy and the Oath of Supremacy that was demanded from uh, members of the House of Lords in 1534. On the receiving end of all this was Wolsey, who was arrested on charges of primonire, that is, um, not disallowing the superiority of the Pope's courts in England. And this is a letter in his own handwriting, um, begging for mercy just after his arrest. Of course, he died before he could be tried for any, any crimes against the king. So the process of, of Anne's progress from mistress to queen really depended on how she handled the king. And I think she realised that if she became pregnant, she would force the king's hands. She'd always um, resisted Henry's attempts to get her into bed unless he would um, agree to make her queen. But by January 1533, when they were married, she was already probably three or four months pregnant. Princess Elizabeth was born in September 1533, but this complicated things for Henry perhaps in ways he hadn't appreciated. Mary could not be declared illegitimate since she was conceived when her parents were ignorant of any invalidity in their marriage. Elizabeth was not the son of a Tudor, well, was not the son that Henry craved, and Mary's legal position simply invited opposition on a number of new fronts. The split with Rome being the most serious because this created um, the authority to grant the divorce on the one hand, but also incurred the enmity of Catholic Europe on the other. And Henry was probably just as vulnerable to a return of the Wars of the Roses as he had been in 1525. But now he faced a massive enemy in Charles V. And also disquiet amongst the people who'd been used to the Pope in the background, um, the King's sort of fairly equal relationship with Rome during the late medieval period. This was now overturned and it was a sort of brave new world they had to get used to. In August 1534, attempts to have another son resulted in a miscarriage for Anne and this put further pressure on their relationship and really began to highlight Anne's independence, her fiery personality, the kind of things that, um, that Henry would have found a bit grating as his ultimate goal was denied to him. So it wasn't a very happy family as you can imagine. Mary hated Anne for branding her a bastard and displacing her mother. The split obviously created political parties around the social um, etiquette of the court and followers and opponents of both sides especially when linked to policies over the church and Anna was blamed by the conservatives for bringing in these new ideas and encouraging radicals and for promoting Cromwell's clampdown on those who disagreed with the reforms in the church so her evangelical reforming she was no protestant but she was quite a breath of fresh air in terms of female 
um, noble noble women with an interest in in clergy and their reform of the clergy. And this is part of the result of this was the Compendium Compitorum, which is a, a large list of the charges of immorality against monks and clerics in 1536. And we have this out at the back. And this is a list of charges for the monks at um, St. Mary's Abbey in York, which had been founded by the Crown. Some unpleasant offences, including uh, lots of sodomy, unfortunately. But this type of clampdown was a spark to the pilgrimage of grace, the massive rising across the north in 1536 in protest at the king's monastic policy. So the search for an heir had this dramatic and almost catastrophic consequence in that Henry reached the point of dissolution, um, of deposition rather, but was saved in the end. So Henry needed to, to find some new allies, and here we have annotations in his own hand um, on a draft letter to the King of France, explaining why he wanted a divorce, why he had divorced Catherine, and justifying his second marriage. Um, obviously you can see here Henry's education, fluent in French and Latin, but really not interested unless absolutely necessary in um, annotating documents and getting involved with what his ministers normally did on his behalf. So yet again, we might link Anne's beginning of Anne's downfall to a miscarriage in January 1535. This certainly might have changed Henry's attitude to the Queen and certainly might, might, might have made him question why God wasn't favouring him with a son. And Anne's enemies jumped on this... Um, train of thought because Henry was already sending gifts to Jane Seymour who was being promoted from within Anne's circle of servants and Henry um, had caught her eye but Anne was, was strong around the court because Cromwell was a protector because they agreed on, on the monastic policy but when they actually came to blows over how to use the assets of the dissolved monasteries um, this split Anne and Cromwell and left her open to attack from the conservatives and it was probably this interest and pressure to change state policies rather than the miscarriages because, as James shown, has shown, Catherine of Aragon had a number of miscarriages um, before 1525. This is probably what caused Anne's downfall, playing a role which, which Henry didn't expect his queens to, um, to enjoy. So Anne got her chaplains, her radical chaplains, to preach against Cromwell, and Cromwell feared that Anne might divert Henry from this programme because obviously she had his ear in quiet moments in the bedroom and she'd shown a, a dangerous willingness to intervene in this state and state affairs and I think this is part of the reason why she fell. So early in 1536 also Cromwell wanted a change in foreign policy. He set up a meeting with representatives of Charles V but instead of agreeing to the plan Henry just used this as an, op an opportunity to try and press the emperor to recognise Anna's queen, something he wasn't going to do. So Cromwell's direction in foreign policy became blocked, and Anne was blamed for this. And it made Cromwell vulnerable as well, but it's a, an indication of just how dangerous he thought Anne was that he um, was determined to get rid of her. So he, he began investigating Anne's court circle and was looking for evidence of how the relationships that she was enjoying could be twisted into tales of adultery and this is exactly what he did in the, um, the indictments that we've got out at the back relating to her trial and the trial of her alleged co-conspirators. So 
interviewing and torturing a number of Anne's acquaintances, um, especially Henry Norris, gave Cromwell the information he needed. And by the 2nd of May, 1536, Anne and her brother Lord Rochford were in the tower and Cromwell made sure that her other allies couldn't speak to the king on her behalf. But we can see almost how farcical it was from the nature of the trial records itself. Adultery with the Queen was not made treason until 1542 when Catherine Howard was accused of much the same thing. In 1536 it was a moral offence that should have been tried before a church court. Anne and her followers were alleged to have plotted Henry's death which was clearly nonsense, but that's how it appears in the charges. And Cromwell picked the jurors on the grand jurors, grand juries, to ensure that these cases, these allegations, could come to trial. And hence they made sure also that Jane Seymour was keeping Henry's mind occupied. And we get some evidence of how Anne thought these charges were invalid as well. She refused to ask forgiveness for this crime, even up to the point of execution, which most criminals and condemned people would normally do. And none of her ladies was charged with, charge with any offences. So this kind of arrangement, sexual intrigue in the court, would have required ladies-in-waiting, ladies of the chamber, to arrange meetings. And this didn't happen with Anne's trial, although it did with Catherine Howard's. And of course, Anne's marriage to Henry was declared void on the 17th of May, which removed all basis for her adultery. If she'd never been legally married to him in the first place, how could she have committed adultery? Nevertheless, she was beheaded by a sword two days later apparently a mercy that Henry allowed these swordsmen to come over from Calais instead of chopping her head off with an axe and here's the trial papers and accusations against Francis Weston including his carnal knowledge of the Queen um, and many more accusations like this in a very large collection of trial papers which I don't think we've ever translated or transcribed but it'd be very interesting to see the, the full nature of all the documents here so we can move on to Jane Seymour. Of middle stature and no great beauty, she was described, but she'd certainly done the job in keeping Henry occupied while Cromwell sorted out Anne Boleyn. She progressed from being a lady of the previous Queen's chamber, but unlike Anne, she managed to remain virtuous as he pursued her around the, the corridors of Hampton Court and Greenwich. So Henry took this as a sign of encouragement, but also a friendship so the relationship was slightly different. And for Henry, the death of his previous wives made this a, a proper new start because there was no woman around now who could have another child. Um, Anne and Catherine were both dead by this stage. But he was starting to get on, and as James has said, he had um, an injury in jousting in 1525. He was also crushed under a horse in January 1536 and unconscious for two hours. And I think some historians think this is where his leg ulcers, his problems with vein thrombosis started, um, which, I don't know, has some sort of effect on his personality, let's say, made him even more grouchy and less active, although his consumption of calories obviously never went down, so his size went up. <laughs> so Jane's family did very well after the marriage, a mere two weeks after Anne had been executed. But she stayed above faction, unlike Anne herself, and she actually did something to repair the relationship with the half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth. Elizabeth being very young, obviously. Jane was pregnant very quickly, but plague in London prevented her coronation, so she was never crowned queen. 
and she died two days after the christening of Prince Edward in October 1537. So Queen for a mere 18 months or so, but a devastating blow to Henry. He was genuinely devastated by her death um, in a way that we probably find difficult to appreciate because he went through so many wives. But obviously, he'd, and, um, Jane had given him the son he wanted and she was still relatively young and they seemed to have got on well. So Henry was persuaded by Cromwell in his grief that the next bride should benefit the state in a bigger way. Um, and alliances at this time between Francis I of France and Charles V and the renewal of Henry's excommunication by Pope Paul meant that he had to seek help in new areas and he went to Germany. So Anne of Cleves, I think we know Anne as the mayor of Flanders but Holbein painted two very good pictures of her. This is a miniature and on the next slide if I go forward a bit there's a finished portrait of her. So she wasn't um, the sort of ugly woman that people have made her out to be. I think what Henry was most concerned about was that she had a, a former pre-contract of marriage and when she came over um, to England in December 1539 this documentation that really clarified her position with the Duke of Lorraine was missing so Henry wasn't sure if she'd actually been married if she was still a virgin um, he felt that she had too full a figure for a maid maybe that was just the German climate or whatever um, but he made a snap judgement that he didn't really want to be married to her until he got more information so during the first five months of 1540 of their married life, Henry felt unable to consummate the marriage. Cromwell tried to discuss the matter with, between the king and queen in a kind of delicate way, I would imagine. But by mid-June, Anne was writing of the king's attraction to her servant, Catherine Howard. So again, another short-lived relationship. Hen Henry still argued publicly that he was waiting for the documentation concerning the previous engagement. But really... When Hen uh, Charles V and Francis split their alliance, Henry had an opportunity to seek an annulment of this marriage, and he did so. So I think Anne lived on, technically known as the King's sister. She retained Richmond Palace and Bletchingley in Hertfordshire uh, for life, although Edward VI overturned all this. And she had a, a reasonable endowment still. She lived around the court and um, surprisingly still got on with Catherine Howard when she moved into place. So Catherine was really only only 19 years old, I think, when she married Henry, um, who was almost 50. And following the disastrous marriage to Anne of Cleves, Henry was besotted very quickly with, Hen with Catherine's energy and lustfulness, a, a choice word, although fondness for the wilder side of court life soon led to boredom with the ageing and obese Henry. Catherine was also the victim of infighting between the conservative and radical factions at court. And following the fall of Thomas Cromwell, who was executed in the, the aftermath of, of the Anne of Cleves marriage, the conservative courtiers, under Catherine's uncle, Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, managed to get Henry to agree that she should become his next wife. This was in August 1540, as Norfolk's conservatives triumphed. But Catherine had a rather uh, checkered past, let's say, um, this is really the responsibility of her guardians 
Um, she lived with her stepmother in Lambeth. But she had a, a number of sexual relationships in her late teens, which she didn't tell the king about, although she had the opportunity to do so. Um, one was with her music teacher, Thomas Mannix, from Streatham, where I am, called Claim to Fame. Um, another was Francis Deerham, who'd um, been a page to the king. All of this um, was hidden from the king. What was really dangerous was Catherine didn't stop once she became king, um, became queen rather. On a progress during the summer of 1541, she continued to meet Thomas Culpepper in her private chambers. Um, and this is a letter that she sent um, to Thomas, yours as long as life endures. And we see this at the back of the room as well. This letter was used of evidence, uh, as evidence of Catherine's adultery. Um, but it's not direct evidence of a sexual affair, but she placed herself in a very dangerous position by becoming involved um, with the king when this earlier tainted life was hanging over her. And she certainly never explained why she continued to see these men in her private chambers. So naturally, Henry would draw his own conclusions. I mean, the danger of this was it threatened any legitimacy of any children that they would have. So Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, managed to get hold of all of this information um, and he presented it to the king in October 1541. And eventually Catherine confessed, but basically said well, she was planning to give up all of this stuff when she became queen, but hadn't quite got round to it yet. Um, and the indictments really go into a lot of detail about what was going on. Um, and I suppose Catherine was a very young girl still, very easily led, um, obviously in a position of great power in a decade at least where everything is going on around the court at a great pace and the factions are being rather ruthless so I think she was kind of swept away by events to some extent but Henry was very very upset by this apparently he couldn't even express his feelings to, um, to courtiers perhaps an indication of a genuine attachment and a genuine wish for, for the future but she was condemned by attainder and was executed in February 1542. So Henry's really no further on in his search for a legitimate heir. And it, it probably all got a bit too much for the Duke of Norfolk, who wrote this amazing letter. Again, we have it at the back of the room. Um, Apologising for the abominable deeds done by two of my nieces against your, door, uh, against your highness. And he also wanted to know how your majesty doth weigh your favour towards me. Well, the short answer was not too well, because Norfolk was due to be executed on the morning that Henry himself actually died in January 1547. So he was saved, although his son had already been executed, for organising. Um, well, apparently the Tower of London was so full of Howard relatives that they had to imprison them elsewhere during this period. So here we have Henry, looking rather fetching, about 1545, in his late 40s, when he meets Catherine Parr. Catherine is a very different kind of woman. She's an experienced, um, well, she was called the Yorkshire housewife. So she was experienced, but not of court life and not of, um, of factional politics. Again, she'd served around the court. Um, she'd hoped, in fact, to marry Queen Jane's brother, Thomas Seymour. Um, but when Henry showed an interest, she declared this was God's will and ditched Thomas for the king. But she wasn't really recruited as a nursemaid to see Henry through his final years. I think because she was a bit older, 
and she was very confident in her own position. She'd thought through her religious position very clearly. This was to haunt her a bit later on, but it meant that she could debate and spar with the king almost as an equal. I think Henry enjoyed this in his later years. But she wasn't royal, and she hadn't been around the court, so she had a lot of learning to do to catch up with the way things happened around London and Westminster. But the crucial thing she offered to Henry was that she built the relationship between all three of his, of his children. Um, and she was certainly instrumental in, in getting portraits painted of the three children, which was a first. But also she brought um, certainly Mary and Elizabeth back into the royal succession. So if it hadn't been for Catherine Parr, we might not have had Elizabeth I or Mary I. So for that we should be grateful. And Henry did trust her. She was a regent ahead of the council regency when Henry invaded France again in 1544. And she brought the children to live with her at Hampton Court, um, which was effectively the trial run for a minority if Henry had died before Edward VI reached maturity. And obviously this alarmed a number of people who could remember what happened to Edward V and Richard, Duke of Gloucester in 1483. No doubt they were all consulting the chronicles and the things that are now missing about who killed the princess. And she had radical ideas on religion, which again made her enemies of the conservatives. So even in a year or 18 months, this is a spectacular rise from someone who had been living quietly in Yorkshire. So the Bishop of Winchester attempted to manipulate um, a plot. They found out she had radical religious books hidden in her toilet. Um, and I think the evidence was found, and a warrant for her arrest was made out. But she managed to convince Henry um, of her loyalty, which was no great skill, because none of the others had managed to do it. And she, she learned her lessons and was subdued in, in Henry's final years, but was excluded from Edward VI's council once Henry was dead in January 1547. And here we can see her organising troops to be sent over to France in 1544. You can see on her signature, she's, she's still putting KP, Catherine Parr at the end for her unmarried maiden name, which is a, a sign of a greater confidence in who she was and how she worked around the court. So she's an interesting figure. Of course, she went on to, um, to remarry and actually married Sir Thomas Seymour in secret in May 1547, but this alienated her from Edward VI and from Seymour's brother, the protector Somerset, and she died in childbirth in September 1548, so didn't realise the potential she might have had. So really to sum up, I suppose this is really what we imagine Henry VIII's reign to be about, magnificence, gold, um, the impression of great power and state, a very domineering and, and dominant kind of figure. But in reality, he was at the mercy of his family life, his lack of heirs, and, and fairly insecure for most of his reign. Uh, just as his father had been for different reasons, Henry never actually um, lived to see his heir reach full maturity. Um, the protectorship did work for a while, but Henry really didn't sort out any of these problems despite his full raft of marriages. Really, his reign was dominated by by massive personalities, and as James said at the start, he delegated affairs out of his own hands 
to Wolsey and Cromwell and others, and left him to focus on the traditional things of warfare and trying to work out the succession. And because this was his focus, he became rather ruthless and intolerant of, um, of any failures in these directions. So where late medieval kings had mixed these concerns with the hands-on control of the council and councillors, Henry VIII left this all to other people. And he was just more hedonistic and indulgent than many royal predecessors, and with little else to distract him, it's not surprising that he became so obsessive and mistrustful. And this is a, you get a sense from our plea role portraits here of how he's changed from the beardless youth of 1517 <coughs> to the rather round old man of 1544. They're recognisable as Henry, but you know, things have taken their toll on him. So that's really all we've got to say in terms of this big picture of, of looking for the succession. Thank you. This event was recorded live on January the 23rd, 2007 at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by Sean Cunningham. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.